Good morning. I'm Cricket. I'm another of the volunteers here at Harbor. And today I get to volunteer in giving the message. But today I want to start with something a little unusual and maybe a little weird, but I'm weird so it fits. I, I want to, I, somebody knows me. I want to do a word association. And that's where I say a word, and the first thing that pops in your mind that's related to it, don't say it out loud yet. We'll have that later. I want you to just think it and hold on to it. So it's, if I say banana, you might think split or peel or monkey, that kind of thing. You ready? Salt. Do you have your word? Okay. I want to first start with setting the, the scene for today's scripture, which was on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had recently chosen his 12 disciples, which was not the norm. Usually the disciples found the rabbi rather than the other way around. And Jesus didn't pick the most educated or wise or expected men to train up to be like himself. And we find several years later, three years later, give or take, in chapter 4 of Acts, verse 13, that the Jewish high priest and other rulers and scribes were upset that the disciples were preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. And these leaders observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. And they were amazed and began to recognize that they had been with Jesus. So even three years later, these 12 disciples are still considered by the religious rulers of their people to be unskilled and ordinary men. And we know that at least four of the disciples were kind of smelly fishermen. They were rough. They had fierce tempers, strong opinions. We know another one was a wealthy tax collector who was hated and despised by his people. They thought he had just awful, terrible tax collectors. Another was a zealot who was into politics and wanted to overthrow the awful Roman government, get rid of them. They did a lot of cloak and dagger type things. And we're not sure what the rest of the disciples did before they became disciples, but they were all unskilled, ordinary men, which was upside down. As Lindsay told us a few weeks ago, that they usually chose the best of the best of the best. These are not them. These are just regular people just like us. And earlier in Matthew, we learned that Jesus had been going around all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, and healing every disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So crowds from all over the place are following him. And he saw the crowds. He went up onto a mountain and sat down. Then the twelve went to him. And the crowds, like us, get to listen in and hear what Jesus taught. Because this is the first time in Matthew that we see Jesus teaching as a rabbi, teaching his students, his followers, those who are to become him. Because a rabbi would often wander around, he'd walk through the streets with his people, his followers, they'd talk about things, they'd discuss it, they'd ask questions, have back and forth. But when a rabbi sat, that was time to be quiet, to listen and to learn. It wasn't a time for questions or discussion. 
time for the students to just take it in. And Nate taught us a lot of what happened at the very beginning with the Beatitudes of this upside-down kingdom that Jesus was bringing in. And that's followed today where in Matthew 5, 13, Jesus is telling the disciples that they have a job in the kingdom of, of God. And their first job is, you are the salt of the earth. Now are you ready? What's your first thought when you heard salt? All kinds of different things. Good. The disciples would have had different thoughts too. When we hear it today, salt of the earth, we think, oh, well, salt of the earth as a phrase means good people, they're kind, they're nice, they're reliable, they're honest. When we look over the disciples when they first start out, they're not like that. (laughs) They're not salt of the earth. But what we see is Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth. Not you will be, you might be, you should be. It's you are. Right now, right here, following me, you are the salt of the earth. And what did Jesus mean by saying that they are the salt of the earth? We all know what salt is, right? Comes in a nice blue package with nice pour spout and all of that. But that's not what it was in the first century. In the first century, it was quite different. The majority of salt in Israel came from the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. And it didn't come in a nice, neat, little round box with a spout. It was more like what a quilting friend of ours recently found out while they were in Italy during one of the two months of the year when they harvest salt. It's this big, huge pile of stuff. And she's standing on it. Would you want to eat that salt? Gross! No! So it's, it's, but we'll get to that later. Because when we have that word association with salt, the disciples would have thought different things. The fishermen had to pack their fish in salt. They didn't have refrigerators, they didn't have freezers, and oh my goodness, you thought they stunk? Rotting fish is beyond that. It's beyond skunk smell. It is vile. So they had to salt it. And they just wouldn't be quite what you expect. And I've lost my place, so fun. Uh, (laughs) But in the Gospel of Matthew, we'll see that it is preserving. That's what he's doing. He's pouring into his people, his followers. He's giving them his words and his teachings that he doesn't want to have them go rancid or go bad. They keep it true. They give others this food, this nourishment that they have. That's part of what it's about, is these words of Jesus that have been written down and given to us so that we have them now. That's preserving it. The salt preserves. We, the disciples, are supposed to preserve what we've been given and hand it out to others and feed them and give them what they need. And someone like Matt, the tax collector Matthew might have been thinking, huh, salt, it's precious, it's expensive. It may not be expensive today, but back then, it was expensive. They even sometimes paid the Roman soldiers with salt. (laughs) It was that precious, 
that valuable that sometimes they were paid in it, which just boggles my mind. But that's where they say the word salary even came from as you work through the centuries, which is fascinating. And it's precious then. It was expensive, it was valued, it was valuable. And that's how God sees us, all of his people, whether we're believers or not. He loves every single one of us. He put his arms out and died for us and took our place. He loves us that much. He traded places with us so that we wouldn't have to be punished for our sins and our wrongdoings, but take on his right kind of living, take his place. Because that's who he is. And in John 14, Jesus tells these 12 that the one who does not love him does not follow his words. And those words which you hear are not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The things I have spoken to you while remaining with you are these things. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send me in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of all that I have said. That you're precious. That these words that he gives us are something we need to preserve. And we're living proof that this actually works because here we are, thousands of years later, having those words, having that love, and knowing that God loves us, that he has given us himself. And we're sharing it, and we're continuing on and becoming like him. Some of the others might have been thinking, hmm, salt, potato chips. Yum! Have you ever had a saltless potato chip? I have. I'm not supposed to eat much salt at all because I'm allergic to it. So I've tried saltless potato chips. Let me tell you, they're not worth it. Don't do it. Don't even bother. They are disgusting. Because salt gives flavor. So some of them may have been thinking flavor. And, you know, our flavor as followers of Jesus doesn't come from a larger-than-life personality or that we're outgoing or we're warm and fuzzy and cozy because some of us aren't outgoing. Me, I'm an introvert. I'm shy when I first meet people. It takes me a while, like months or years, to warm up and get to really be fun with people. Some of you know that because... <laughs> You think I'm a snob? I'm not. I'm just afraid of people because I'm shy and an introvert. So the flavor that we have doesn't come from that. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God. It's about him. It's not about us. And it's because he's given us that flavor. He's the salt and that's within us that others can see and that we share with them because it's not us. It's him. Him within us, doing and working through us. And you know, we come to Jesus just as we are. Just as we are. When I first came to Jesus, I was such a mess. And that's what happens. We come to him where we are. And he starts working in us and talking with us and changing us. So that instead of being that selfish little twit that I used to be, I can be less selfless, less selfish, 
more giving to others, helping others, serving, loving. I wasn't like that when I first came to Christ. Not even close. It was all about me. Instead of grabbing after more, 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 I need more of this, I need more house, I need more money, I need more fancy this and stuff. No. God slowly changes us so that we give, we share, we get to know it's not ours. Everything we have is given by him. It's ours to steward, as Megan said, to share and to trust, which is hard when you don't necessarily know that there's going to be more coming. But that's who we are as his followers. That's where it's all about. It's all about God. Asking, what do you want me to do with this? How do you want me to serve? What do you want me to do? Let go of that control and trust God. It's hard. But there's freedom in that. And we'll find the chains that have been weighing us down and binding us will start falling off and we find that freedom and that hope and that joy. So much comes from letting God work in us and having that flavor that is in us. That's not us, it's him within us. A few of the others, and this might seem like a stretch, might have been thinking, oh, sacrifice. That's not what I think of when I think of salt. Not even close. But in Leviticus 2, the priests are told that every offering of yours shall be seasoned with salt so that the salt Yeah, so that the salt of the covenant of your God will not be lacking from your offering. With all your burnt offerings, you shall offer salt. It's kind of odd. But the priests were to use salt in their offerings. What was an offering? An offering is a sacrifice. God had made a covenant with these people at Mount Sinai. And they were obligated and privileged to remain faithful to God and his covenant, to be his people, his followers, his disciples. And that's what we're called to. That's what Jesus' disciples were called to remain faithful to God, to the covenant they had with him. They're even to be living sacrifices. Our lives lived for him, not for ourselves, not for what we want and we have to get more, 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 but letting go, letting God guide, letting God lead. And there are so many more things that salt could have been in those days. But these are the four of the big ones, and that's why I wanted to bring them up. But that leaves us with which one of these is right. They all are. As disciples, we're to be all of these things and more. Because God and Jesus are more. Disciples are the salt. They're the flavor. They're precious. They're living sacrifices. And we let the God work in us. We know how valued we are and how loved. And share all of these with the people around us. Because we, as his disciples, are now the salt of the earth. And this being salt came with a warning. Because the rest of verse 13 is, but if the salt has become saltless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. 
You think, can, can salt lose its flavor? Yes and no. Really, it's no. But there are ways we can make it diluted and not what it should be. Like you saw my friend on top of that mountain of salt. That's not pure salt. Salt comes with all kinds of other minerals and junk in it that has to be purified, has to be cleansed. Sound familiar? Like we need to be purified, changed and cleansed, get out the impurities and all the gunk. And some salt even has a layer over it that has to be taken off. And there was a place in the temple, a room in the temple, where they actually kept this kind of tasteless salt. Who knew? And when it would get rainy and wet and slick on the marble in the courtyard, they'd take out the salt and throw it down so people could walk on it and not slip and slide on the wet tiles. And that's what we see. Trodden underfoot, just like it said. Another way it can lose its flavor is if I have a grain of salt, one grain of salt, one little itsy-bitsy grain of salt, and I drop it in a cup of water, are you going to taste that? Are you going to notice that there's any salt in there at all? No, because it's diluted. It's watered down. It's not going to be noticed. And we want God to be noticed. If we live, because we do, we do things like everybody else in, in the world. We still have to pay our taxes, raise our children, put food on the table. We go through the same pains and sorrows and heartaches as everyone else. But we have Jesus in us. We have that flavor, him changing us. And as we go through all these things, we seek to do his ways, to go his different version than the world, his upside-down way of doing things. Instead of how a non-believer might do it. Because we say, okay, God said, I have to love. I don't want to. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to not be jealous. I want revenge. You know, all those things that we learned in the series of peacemaking, that's upside down of what the world sees and how they do it. And as we live this way, they're going to be wondering, what on earth is wrong with you? And maybe even ask you, How did you forgive that? How did you get through that? I can't. I'm stuck. Help me with it. And we can use that salt, that flavor that God has put in us to do it. We live in ways of God in the ordinariness of our lives. In our everyday routines, we live out the kingdom values. And I like the way that St. Francis put it when he did the Beatitudes in his own words, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to be consoled, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. 
It's in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it's in dying that we are born to eternal life. This is an upside-down kingdom that we are called to. We are to be flavored, not take on the flavor or the ways of the world or our culture. We're to be like him in our jobs, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. And it won't always be popular to follow God's ways, these beatitudes and these upside-downness. Because as disciples, we're called to live and respond and act differently to live as sacrifices, as giving God our lives, knowing that we are loved so we can love others, sharing his word and preserving it and offering it to others so they can be fed and nourished with his life. That's our first job description. The second one that we have as disciples is to be light, to be the light of the world. And if you're like me, you like to watch the candles at night when they flicker. They're mesmerizing. They're fun. And we find in Matthew, how we're like light in Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Their word association for a city on a hill would have been Jerusalem. No-brainer. Absolutely Jerusalem. Because it was on a series of hills. And it's a little bit sloped. But there's the Mount of Olives. There's the Temple Mount. There's Mount Zion and others. And this temple is where God inhabited in their day. He dwelled within the Holy of Holies, within the temple. God here on earth. God, the one who created light, one who created this earth, who created us, in the temple. There was light in the temple. God was there. From various scriptures, we know that there were charcoal fires that were lit in the darkness in Jerusalem. They could be seen from great distances. Because lights in the dark of night stand out. This is a picture of Jerusalem from our time. But the lights would have stood out a whole lot more then because it would have been a lot darker, a lot less light pollution, as dumb as that sounds. But those lights would have been piercing and bright and mesmerizing. And Jesus here is telling his disciples they are to be light, lights to the world. That could have made them breathless with excitement, overwhelmed, fearful. Ugh, lights. The fishermen would have been used to lights because they've often fished at night and could see lights on the shore and on the hillsides. So they understood that. And that lights at night make things visible, both good deeds and bad. Someone who's helping a person up who tripped over the dog, that'd be me, and someone who's a pickpocket. Both the good and the bad could be seen at night with the lights. And Jesus is telling the disciples, they're the light of the world. Through them, people are going to see their good deeds and their bad. And disciples, as lights, are meant to be visible. Not hidden, not secret. They're 
visible. Like the 12 disciples, when he picked them, he picked them during the day, during a time when other people were around. He didn't just, oh, hey, come over here. Let's, I want to talk to you. No, he chose them, said, follow me, follow me. Others were watching and saw that. He, when he went up to the hillside, the 12 sat around him or stood around him as he spoke, as he trained them and taught them. They were visible. They weren't secret. And as Lindsay put it a couple weeks ago, they were to become who their rabbi is. These 12 men were to be Jesus because that's what a disciple does. It's kind of frightening because we know we make mistakes. We know we'll fall. But we also have his grace and his mercy so that when that happens, we can forgive. We can be forgiven. We can show those who don't know him that's how it works. That's part of being a light in the world is showing them that because we'll stand out in the darkness. Our lives and actions will be visible. We'll model that forgiveness and that grace to everyone around. And Jesus started out here with a big picture with lights to the world, outdoors, and then he moves in something more quiet and intimate inside the home at night. First century homes were dark. They didn't have big garage door windows like we have here. They, they had little tiny 18-inch hole windows, and they usually had one, maybe two. So it was dark. And they had oil lamps that, okay, get ready to groan because I'm going to do a groaner for you. They had oil lamps that don't hold a candle to our electric lights. So it wasn't bright. These lamps were a clay bowl with a wick in it. Their light was meant to be seen. So instead of you know, hiding it, I mean, they didn't have matches. They didn't have those cute little things that you light things with. They had to work hard to get a spark so that they could light that wick and get it going. You're not going to spend all that time doing that and then, oh, let's hide it. No, that's just dumb. You take it and you put it up on a lampstand, one of those branch-like structures that comes out of the side of the house, and everyone can see, everyone can use that light. It makes things visible. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put her under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. As the light of the world, the disciples were not to hide that they followed Jesus. Not in the world, and not in their homes, not in their private lives, not in their work. And we find them sharing it, that this was contagious. They were looking for the Messiah. So when Andrew was following John the Baptist, who then pointed him to Jesus, he didn't hide it. He went and found his brother, Simon, who becomes Simon Peter. He finds him and says, hey, we find the Messiah. Come, let's go. Drags him there. All through the book of Acts, we see it again and again, where people take their brothers, take their sisters, take their friends, take their families. They get baptized. Sometimes even whole households do it together. And they share that light. They don't hide it. They share it. And I've told you when my sister, <laughs> my sister became a Christian and my brother and I weren't very nice to her. We picked on her. We mocked her. We made fun of her. 
We were not nice. Some people don't like the light, and I was one of them. But when I became a disciple, when I took the leap, my family started getting a little annoyed with us. Because, well, it's just a phase. You're just going through a phase, okay? Right. When that didn't happen, and we, several years later, we're still shining our lights, they said, live it, don't preach it. Basically, shut it down, snuff your light out. Not going to happen. I may have to zip my lips, but I'm still going to let my light shine. You can't stop me from doing that. And we did. And God used it. Not everyone will want the light to shine on their lives and their deeds. Someone to hug the darkness. I wanted to for a while. Nobody wants their sins and their junk revealed. But once Jesus starts flavoring us and changing us and showing us what freedom comes with letting him work in that and get rid of it, you want everybody to know. You don't want them to stay where they are. You want them to have it too. And if we look at scripture, a lot of scripture mentions light. It's all over the place. If you open up, say, a strong scoop hordance, and you look through it, there's page of light, page of light. There's a lot of light in there. And one of them that would have come to mind for these disciples would have been when God spoke about his servant, which we now know as Jesus. They didn't at the time. In Isaiah 42, 6, where it says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Jesus was a light to the nations. And just like him, his disciples were to be like him, their light to the world. Exciting and terrifying at the same time. Another scripture is Psalm 105. that says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And it's explained more in verse 130 of that psalm, where it says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Yeah. And then Proverbs 6.23 goes along with that, stating, Your commandment is a lamp and teaching a light. Light is everywhere mentioned throughout Old and New Testament. And the disciples and now us are to bring that light into this darkness of the world, into our homes, our neighborhoods, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. We try to do it like God wants us to, like he says to, with his heart, with his love. Some will be drawn to it. Others will want to go away and not thirst and hunger for God. The word of God, the word of God fills us with his light. Hang out in it. Spend time with it. Spend time with others and discussing it. And there's a very famous theologian, D.L. Moody, who once wrote in someone's Bible, this book will keep you from your sins or your sins will keep you from this book. Ouch. Light and salt are both useful. That's why we aren't to hide it, not to dilute it. And there are easy ways to do it. It just takes a little couple grains of salt, not diluted. 
for someone to want more. It takes a little bit of light for someone to want to draw near. Take somebody a meal. Give them a ride to an appointment. Offer to sit and listen if they're having a tough time. Or just sit and don't say anything. Sometimes that's best. Just be present with them. Invite them to trunk or treat. Or, or to AA meetings. Or for a meal. Send a card. Or to even just let them know you're praying for them. Simple little things. It doesn't take much. Some will catch fire. Others won't. Some others may pick on you. But our job is to be the light. To be the flavor, the salt. Offer it to them. If they don't want it, they don't have to take it. And verse 16 tells us why we do this. It matters that we shine our light. It's that we are salt. The whole purpose of it is so that mankind will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. That's what happens when we let our light shine, when we let the salt come through. It's not that we're saved by works. These works point to God. It's all about him. You know, it's not to make ourselves feel, yeah, I just did a good work. I get Jesus points, as we say in one of my Bible studies. Ooh, that gets you Jesus points. It's like we do it as a joke because you don't get Jesus points. But it's fun. So be that spark. Be that person who can just be a little bit of warmth for someone else and help them. The job of the 12 disciples that have been, has been passed down to us to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world, doesn't need to be spectacular, doesn't need to be over the top, just small little things, just doing our everyday lives, serving in our families, serving in our neighborhood, serving in our communities and our jobs. Our job description from our verse today is to be salt and to be light. Let me pray for us. Father, sometimes we don't do well with being salt or light. We don't do it well. But even in that, even in that, you can be glorified as you forgive us and we accept that forgiveness and we show others who you are with everything we do and every time we mess up you can be glorified and that's what it's about it's about you help us to be salt this week help us to be light we can't do it of ourselves we don't have salt and we don't have light that only comes from you thank you that you are training us up to be like you. Help us to worship you. We thank you, Father. Amen.